Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and today I'm joined by my guest co-host, Dr. John Barlow, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, how are you? Great. Thanks, Peter. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the uh, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so for the month of September, we are doing something different. John and I have been given the incredible good fortune to be the ASCS European Exchange Fellows for 2023. So for this month, we'll be traveling, meeting with some of Europe's most innovative, thoughtful, and impactful shoulder surgeons. We're hoping to give the listeners a taste of some of the incredible contributions these surgeons have made. So we'll be doing a travel pod with many episodes at each site. Along the way, we hope to highlight some of the amazing work being done here. John will be my co-host for these episodes. So I'm hoping he can introduce himself to us. John, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, thanks, Peter. What a uh, fun and exciting month that we have planned. So I'm John Barlow. I grew up in Wisconsin, did undergrad and med school at the University of Wisconsin and uh, residency at Mayo Clinic. I did a shoulder and elbow fellowship at Rothman Institute in Philadelphia and then uh, worked for a couple years, actually three years at Ohio State before I joined the Mayo Clinic faculty. There I do shoulder and elbow surgery with an emphasis on trauma, um, but also really enjoy the full soup to nuts shoulder and elbow practice. And I know we've talked about this for months coming up to this, and I'm just incredibly excited about getting to travel around Europe and learn both from you, but also from these um, surgeons. I know as we've talked about, some of the things I'm most excited about, obviously we've, a lot of these surgeons that we're gonna meet over the next month have really written the books on how to do shoulder surgery and have been incredibly innovative. It's different to write about it than to do it, so it'll be really fun to see how they do it and see what, what they do from day to day. Second, when, whenever we read papers, we know kind of a snapshot of what they were doing six months or a year or even 18 months ago. So it'll be really fun to see what changes they um, anticipate in their practice and what things have changed, even from what they're writing about. And I think that'll be really fun for us and fun to share with our listeners. I'm also really interested in learning a little bit more about the differences in the healthcare systems in each of the countries that we go to from the United States. And um, we're fortunate to be from the, the United States and have an incredible, robust shoulder and elbow system there. Uh, but certainly there are things that we can learn and things that we can bring back regarding that. And finally, one of the unifying things about shoulder and elbow surgery, certainly one of the things that brought me into shoulder and elbow, and I know as we've talked about brought you into it, is the ability to interact with lots of amazing personalities, very friendly people. And I think the love of shoulder and elbow surgery is one that kind of crosses the ocean and uh, getting to learn and, and be with these people and just get to know them personally. I, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Well, I certainly share your excitement to see people from a different culture that approach what I'm sure are similar pathologies, certainly similar anatomy from a completely different perspective and to see all the amazing things they're doing. I couldn't agree with you more that this will give us a, a taste of the most cutting edge, the things that are their most current thoughts on each of their approaches, but then also to see for the more classical approaches, the more classical things they've published, to try and get into the details about the contributions they've made and what led them to the innovations that they've contributed throughout their careers. So we're going to be traveling over the next month. We're going to release several episodes. We'll release them probably on somewhat of a weekly to biweekly basis. And um, we're hopeful that you'll enjoy these and that they will um, give you um, some insight into the wonderful things going on over here in this continent. 
Okay, we are sitting here with uh, Professor Pascal Valot in Nice, France, um, after two wonderful days in the operating room and clinic. He's been an incredibly gracious host, and we've been extremely fortunate to learn from him. We've seen arthroscopic Lagerge, we've seen bio-RTSA, um, we've seen these same things in clinic. So thank you again for having us as a host, and welcome to this brief interview on our traveling fellowship. Thank you. Thanks to you. I'm very pleased to welcome you here in this and uh, hope you had uh, some fun with us. Oh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing. And I wanted to talk, you know, the BioRSA and the arthroscopic letter J have been the things we've seen that have been the most striking. We've seen long-term follow-up, you know, we've seen both surgical techniques. So I want to start with the BioRTSA. So you told me today you first started in 2006 and then you, you told me also briefly how you got the idea. Tell us, tell us about this technique. Yeah. Actually, it was in 2005. Uh, one day, I, I, I was doing, I, I was performing a, a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, and I make a cut of the humeral head, and I, then I looked at the at the piece of bone, and I, I told to myself, I, I said to myself, it's a very good bone. We could keep it and use it as a graft. So that's where I get the idea. So I asked the, the people from Tournier at that time. It was Tournier uh, to 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 build. Uh, to design a, a base plate with a long peg. And I, uh, I had the idea of using a bell saw uh, to harvest the bone graft from inside the, humor, uh, the, the proximal humerus. So I had to wait a little and I did the first case in March 2006 actually. And initially my, my goal was just to avoid the scapular notching that uh, was uh, seen with the uh, Gramont type uh, reverse prosthesis. So initially my goal was just to to go lateral uh, to avoid the notching. And uh, I start the first cases. It, it worked very well. I noticed immediately that the motion was better. So I made a very simple studies with uh, different slices of uh, in the lab. I mean six millimeter of thickness, eight millimeter of thickness, ten millimeter of thickness behind the base plate and we did a, a range of motion study and we, we, we saw that for instance if you have a 10 millimeter thickness uh, graft posterior to the base plate you actually double your arc of external internal rotation so you really increase your motion in rotation but also in elevation because you don't impinge as early with the acromion or with the scapula in failing. So it was really uh, something very uh, appealing and also the other thing is that initially with the Gramont prosthesis we, were, we, we had some dislocations and when I started to do the BioRSA to lateralize the, the glenoid I didn't observe anymore any uh, instability for primary cases. You can have of course instability when you do a revision cases but I must say that I cannot remember actually having a, a, a dislocations with the BioRSA except with a, a very severe trauma, but I mean, no more uh, instability with, uh, with lateralizing the, the glenoid. So that was the, 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 the beginning of the story. And initially I, I harvested a, a slice of cancellous bone that was parallel. And sometimes uh, I was not happy with my post-op x-rays because the base plate and the sphere was still looking upward a little. So uh, as an idiot, I start to rim more in fairly to tilt downward my base plate and my sphere. And by doing this, I lost 
the benefit of lateralization because I was reaming too much in fairly. Uh, so the, the, I was going medial and then the, the bone, bone graft were just compensating for my reaming until I realized that if, you, if I would do a, a, a square, an angle uh, graft, I would be able to both correct the inclination and lateralize. And this was in 2010. And since then, I never changed. I mean, my, my, my graft is angulated about 10, 15 degrees or 20 if you need more. And uh, uh, by doing this, by having an angle by RSA, I can correct what we have called the reverse shoulder angle, which is the inclination of the lower portion of the glenoid surface. You can correct as well the retroversion if you need. And uh, since then we never quit and all my primary cases are by RSA. There is no exception. So it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because these, some of these concepts are now taken as, you know, fact by orthopedic surgeons that are training now. For instance, the lateralization improves impingement free arc. One of the things that I think differs from your concept than Mark Frankel's concept is that you're still distalizing. And Mark Frankel yeah. is very much saying that he wants to make the center of rotation the exact same as in the anatomic shoulder. Tell us, what are the benefits that we get from distalization if we're also lateralizing the glenoid side? Yes, the two basic biomechanical principles of Paul Gramont, who was a surgeon in, in Dijon, France, you know, was medialization of the center of rotation and distalization of the humerus. So we have quit medialization by lateralizing the glenoid. So there remain one, uh, it remains one, one principle, which is the distalization. So today, more and more surgeons are using 135 uh, uh, inclination uh, humeral implants, which is okay, which is better for maybe rotation, but which is probably not as good for tension of the deltoid and, and, and to overcome the absence of cuff muscles, we need the deltoid to be, to be stronger. So I'm still thinking that the tensioning the deltoid, so distalizing the humerus, is good for, uh, for, for uh, active elevation. So if you look at the results of, of Mark Frankel with his prosthesis, they are very good. But maybe uh, his active elevation is not as good as, he, as, as we can obtain with, with an, a more uh, distalized humerus. I mean, so it's, it's all about compromise. What do you want? Rotation, elevation. I would like, I would like to have both. That's why I'm still... Uh, trying to, to, to distalize my humerus. Well, we certainly saw in clinic, even at 10 and 13 year follow-up, remarkable elevation for these patients. So um, that emphasis has, has really paid off. One of the other things I think, besides the bone work, which we really get hung up on, was the meticulous soft tissue work that you do. We had one patient today, a reverse with an intact rotator cuff, and you maintain the supraspinatus. You did essentially a watertight um, subscapularis repair that looked essentially like an anatomic subscapularis repair. And then the other part was at the end, the thoughtful and meticulous care that you took to take down any impinging osteophytes or um, we did a, a chromioplasty and a tuberoplasty. Can you talk about kind of the, the subtleties or the art of the reverse shoulder placement for you in that way? Yes, of course. The the thing is that uh, with, with experience, we learn uh, what mistakes we can do. And initially, I didn't pay attention at all at the potential uh, acromial uh, impingement. And then I realized in some patients, 
that uh, when you have ossification of the CA ligament in cuffed arthritis, this is hard bone here. And uh, in addition, you have bone covering the footprint in cuffed arthritis. And this bone on the CA ligament, this bone on, on the great tuberosity, even with the reverse, it impinges. It impinges. There is some impingement, anterolateral impingement. So I started in some cases to do an acromioplasty. Uh, it's not difficult to do and, uh, with a deltopector approach. And also some tuberoplasty, which means to remove the bone from the great tuberosity. And we, we did this first on the software, on Blueprint. And we clearly uh, observed that the motion was better in elevation and abduction. And we did it in, in, in the clinic, in, in the operating room. And also the patient, the motion is better. And we didn't observe uh, uh, any acromial fracture uh, because of this acromioplasty. It's just the tip of the acromion that we remove to avoid impingement in flexion and impingement in abduction. That's great. And one of the other things that I thought was really fun to talk to you about is one of our controversies that we're all getting hung up on is inlay and onlay stems. Can you tell us, you've, you've simplified that for Peter and myself. Can you tell us your thoughts on inlay versus onlay? Yes. Uh, so the, the first, cons, first prosthesis we used was a Gramont-type prosthesis, the Equalis Reverse. It was inlay. The problem is that the prosthesis was too bulky and sometimes it was uh, difficult to implant. But basically... Uh, the results were, were good, but some instability, uh, some uh, dislocations were observed. And of course, the notching because of the 155 inclination uh, implant on the humeral side. So then we came with the Equalis Ascent, Ascent Flex, you know, which is an only system. And at first, I must say, I was not happy at all with the prosthesis because it was too, too tight, difficult to reduce. And I didn't want to compromise on the glenoid lateralization because I knew that was very important to regain motion, full motion, to, to be stable. So I have to compromise on the humor side. So what I start to, started to do is to cut uh, the humerus 5 mm below the anatomical neck to be able to place the metallic cup uh, on the humeral side and then the polyethylene, the smallest polyethylene possible. And by doing this, we had fantastic motion and uh, it, the reduction was possible. The thing is that now we have developed an inlay system, which is a perform uh, prosthesis. And so we don't want to lose the motion, the good motion that we had with the ascend. This is why for this system, with the inlay system, the perform, I use a thicker polyethylene, plus three or plus six millimeters. Because I want to be tension, I want to distalize, I want to keep this tension of the deltoid to overcome the absent or weak uh, uh, muscle of the cuff, muscles of the, of the cuff. To me, this is such a great demonstration of something your partner, Joaquin Sanchez Sotelo, talks about frequently that inlay onlay is, we describe it as an implant factor, but it is a technique, it is it, a surgeon's technique. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It, it, and the center of rotation relative humerus can be placed in various positions by the surgeon depending upon the cut, which is a surgeon modifiable factor. I agree fully. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is remarkable about the, the bio-RTSA um, that we've seen while we've been here is in the long-term follow-up that the graft incorporates. Now, um, tell us your thoughts about what, when you've seen the grafts on long-term follow-up, are they remodeling? Are there portions of them that resorb? 
Is it all of it, that, all of it that remains the same? Have you ever gone back in for other reasons and taken it off and been able to reuse that bone for another implant? What does that bone look like in the long term? So I, I, revised, I revised very few of them, uh, mainly for infection, uh, but uh, otherwise not for mechanical reasons. Um, if you, the only um, complication you may have is if you tilt the, the base plate and the sphere superiorly. That's not good. It should be neutral. RSA angle uh, equals to zero. That's for sure, because this gives you compressive forces instead of shearing forces, so no loosening possible. So the graph incorporates, you, today you have seen patients with uh, 10 years follow-up, 12 years follow-up, 13 follow-ups, because we are following these patients, because uh, I, I can understand that people don't trust me, I can understand that uh, seeing the, the bone graph resolves. Uh, there are some confusions in the literature because they mix allograph and autograph. This is pure autograph, and I can tell you, even in very uh, elderly patients, like 80, 85 or more, it heals. It heals, and uh, so it may resolve in fairly if you have notching. That's why it's important to be very low with the base plate and the sphere. That's why it's very important to neutralize the inclination. It may resolve partially in some patients, superiorly, but very rarely. I mean, in most of the cases, uh, you, you don't have resorption. I did not observe, at least myself, resorption of uh, these bone grafts. And I do, as you have seen, I do CT scan each time because sometimes it's difficult to see on the X-ray. Mm -hmm. And I, I can understand that people are afraid if they don't see correctly uh, the bone graft uh, on the X-ray. But it's difficult because it's uh, difficult to, to have a true epiview, number one and to see the, the bone, which is not the, probably as dense as, it's not cortical bone, it's cancerous bone. But it's still there, and uh, as I said, I revise very few cases, and mainly for infection, low-grade infection. Well, something that you really like that you told us uh, in the last two days is that lies take the elevator, truth take the, takes the stairs, and I think it'll be really interesting to follow it. Um, we could see your patients coming back and the outstanding outcomes. So we look forward to continuing to follow that data over time at 10 and 13 years. Let's uh, transition a little bit into the arthroscopic latergee, which is another area that you that we talked about that you've really made accessible for lots of surgeons and um, obviously taught thousands of surgeons how to do that well. Can you talk about modern uh, iterations of that? One of the things maybe not modern to you, but uh, you've moved to one single button and your thoughts about button um, and suture fixation versus screws. Yes, uh, I, I told you the story about the button. Uh, one day I, have a compli I had a complication. I was doing a latarge procedure and I, I fractured the, the coracoid process. And the, the bone fragment that I had uh, was too small to be uh, fixed with a screw. So I was in the middle of the procedure and I didn't know what to do. That's where I, I said to myself at that time, uh, maybe I should try to, do, to use a button to fix it. So I pierced, I pierced the glenoid neck. I put a, uh, an endo button, a regular endo button posteriorly. I, put a, I, I, I drilled through the piece, a little piece of coracoid and I put another button anteriorly. And I just tied the, 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 the knots, the sutures with a nice knot, just with a knot pressure, although it was open surgery. I just uh, tensioned the suture like this and, and tied the knot. And 
Of course, I, I was not sure it would heal. So I followed the patient with CT scan again uh, after the surgery and at six months, one year, and it healed. So that's where I said, hey, there is something here that we should explore. So I started to do a series of patients with a regular under button. And uh, I was tensioning by, uh, by hands, you know, no, no tensioner at that time. And at six months on CT scan, I had only 65% of bone graft healing. So I've, I thought to myself, I should find something to increase my healing rate and that it comes qu faster, quickly. That's where I get the idea of the suture tensioner. And in fact, this is fantastic because you transform a flexible suture into a rigid bar. And in fact, your double button becomes like a bolt, which means you have one anterior button, one posterior button. So you have two points of fixation. But instead of, it, of having two anterior points of fixation with two screws, you have one anterior and one posterior. And as I always say, a mechanical uh, engineer in first year of study knows that the bolt is more resistant than, a, than one or two screws. As I always say, as a joke, is that go to Paris, look at the Eiffel Tower, and tell me if you see one single screw. No, it's only bolts. I mean, when you take uh, the plane, look on the flight on, the, on, on, your, on your plane uh, uh, wings and on the fuselage and tell me if you see one single screw. There is no, it's only bolts. Why? Because with the vibration of the plane, I mean, if you have screw, it will, uh, it would just crash down uh, because of loosening of the screws, you know. So I'm convinced 100% that the, the buttons are better than the screws from a mechanical standpoint. That's one thing. But also, I'm, I'm convinced that the textile, the sutures, are so strong today that they are as strong as uh, metallic wire or cables. And in fact, this is something in unbelievable. But I mean, textile today are really mechanically very strong. And I think shoulder surgeons, surgeons in general, should realize that the progress that has been made in this field are huge. And we should take advantage of this using textile instead of metallic wires of cables. And finally, just to finish on the buttons, initially I was using standard underbuttons, except that when you, I started to use a tensioner, when I was putting tension on the suture, sometimes the button was sliding on the side of the, of the bone graph and the suture was cutting through the bone. And that's why I designed a specific button with a, a, an eyelet and I change instead of putting the tensioner from the front i put it from the posterior uh, portal so you are perfectly aligned and the more tension you put the more compression you put and with a specific uh, anterior button which is an eyelet there is no more possibility to to for the suture to cut through the bone just the listeners listening from home you know one of the one of the other advantages of this is that it allows you to drill from the back and when you drill from the back, you avoid all of the neurovascular risk that we normally incur drilling from the front where the brachial plexus is directly in front of the glenoid. So that's a huge advantage of your technique. Yeah. From the beginning, my idea was to make, a, to, 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 to conceive a, a guided uh, suture. And uh, the only way you can be parallel to the glenoid surface is coming from posterior, especially under arthroscopy, because Open, it's easier because you can bend your medial retractor, you can see your glenoid surface, and you can try to be parallel, although it's difficult. 
But under arthroscopy, you're trapped by the kyphosis of the patients, by the, the, the anatomy, which is different from uh, every patient. And you're coming through a small anterior medial portal and you're not sure you're going to be aligned with the glenoid surface and you're never sure to be parallel, number one. Number two, you're too close. You're close to the brachial plexus when you drill and when you tighten your screws. So it's very dangerous. So the advantage of coming from posterior is, number one, it's accurate, it's parallel to the glenoid surface. Number two, it's safe because you drill inside the joint, the glenoid joint, and you're away from the brachial plexus. There is no, no risk at all. And uh, just to, 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 to finish with, uh, with the arthroscopic latarge and the buttons, at the moment I realized that um, arthroscopic latarge is difficult arthroscopic surgery. And I, I think it's like ski, you know, you have the green slopes, the red slopes, the black slopes and off-piste. And arthroscopic latarge is off-piste, it's difficult, you need really to have a huge experience in in arthroscopy before you, you start to do this operation. But my point is that do it open, do an open latarge, it's perfect. If you do it correctly, if you manage it correctly, there is no problem doing a small deltopectoral approach and doing it open. I think it's better than doing a bad arthroscopic surgery. But my point is stop using screws in the shoulder, just use buttons. It's so nice, it's low profile, it's much better and uh, it's, it works well, it's a bolt, it's mechanically very strong and I think surgeons should now think about it and use it and try it open to realize how good it is. I like it, I'm convinced, I mean I think it was, um, it was fun to watch it and really to see how strong it was and then we got to see a few patients back with obvious healing and you've um, had integrity about following your results with a really high rate of union of those patients. The one exception was the smokers, and certainly it's important, it sounds like, um, to get people to quit smoking. You recommend patients quit for six months, and the non-union rate was higher, I think you told us. Yeah, yeah. the only uh, fibrous union or delay union that I observed was really in the smokers, which should not exist because they are supposed to be sports people, but sometimes it happened that they are smokers. So. If I do this operation, I ask them to quit smoking for six months uh, because I think it's good for them. It will uh, increase their healing rate uh, and, and that's very important, I think. Another quick hitter. You taught us to immobilize the shoulder in neutral position rather than an internal rotation. That sounds like something that's important to you. Um, Tell us about that. You use a, what we would in, oftentimes in the United States call an external rotation brace, but I think we could call it moving forward a neutral rotation brace. Yeah, I'm not looking for external rotation. I'm just looking for neutral rotation. And the, the thing is that if you do this under arthroscopy, if you do the latarge under arthroscopy, and at the end of the surgery, you move the arm in internal rotation, you, you see exactly what, what is happening. What is happening is that your conjunct tendon is close to the tendon of the subscap, and if it heals in this position, it will limit ex uh, external rotation. While if you put the arm during surgery in neutral rotation, you see immediately that the conjunct tendon is going to be located in the muscular part of the subscap, and therefore this is where it's going to heal, and you will never limit the external rotation. I, can, I, I, I follow my patient, we measure rotation, and frankly, maybe 10 degrees sometimes of limitation of external rotation, but no more.
they are they have really symmetrical uh, motion in, 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 in if you do this. So for me, no more internal rotation brace, neutral rotation brace, only two weeks, pendulum exercise from day one, and then uh, they go to see the physio after one month, and usually they can go back to uh, contact and co uh, contact sport and collision sports at three months. Well, this has been a real tour de force of some of the, some just a small number of the substantial contributions you've made and that we've witnessed. Uh, anything else you wanted to ask about, John? One more thing. You've taught us before, but you reminded us here, looking, especially in the instability um, uh, patients for anterior and inferior hyperlaxity with excessive anterior, uh, excessive external rotation and uh, abduction on the contralateral shoulder. We saw a couple episodes of that um, in clinic as well. So I think that was a nice one, even in patients who might not have an elevated Baden score. Yeah, uh, these patients, the hyperlax patients, are difficult patients. And uh, for instance, I sometimes I, you have to operate on the hyperlax patients because you can be hyperlax and you can have a trauma uh, that uh, increase the laxity of your shoulders and even create a small bank out lesion or a tear in your capsule and your ligaments. And uh, I know that some surgeons don't operate at all on hyperlax patients. They say these patients are crazy, they will have recurrence of instability. But some of them are not crazy. They had just a trauma and they, they now have a painful and unstable shoulder. And I think the bank out operation and, the, and the, the capsular shift are very good operation for them just to put back the shoulder in the, in the way it was before the trauma. That's all you, you, you want to do. That's all I got. I could go for two hours with uh, Professor Bolo, but uh, I'll let you take us home. I, I, want, yeah, I want to be respectful of Professor Bolo's time because I also, we, I wish that I could have recorded all of the two days we had. <laughs> yeah. and we could just play that. People would listen to it. And it probably <laughs> surprises you. Um, but I really appreciate you doing this with us. I think it's going to be extremely valuable to the people who listen to the podcast. And um, thank you again for your hospitality. Uh, we've been, again, extremely fortunate to be here. Thank you for coming. I mean, it's always nice for me to have young surgeons like you because it's very stimulating. You're asking questions and uh, it's for me, I have to, to go forward, to, to, to go further in my concepts and to try to explain why I do things. And uh, as you have seen in the clinics, I don't hide anything. You have seen the results of my patients. Even you have seen some BioRSA at 10 or 13 years. They, they are there, they are, they, are, they are doing well, that's why I continue and uh, thank you and uh, I'm sure you're going to do, a, you, have a, you will have a great career, so take care and uh, be, be, be happy. Well, we try, you, you will inspire us to do better. Thank you very much. Merci. <laughs> Merci.